Tonight we learn about the healing of Saul. And Saul is one of these characters that if you know the Bible, you know who Saul is. Because if you look at the, Old Test- or the New Testament, half of it is either written by Saul or about Saul. And he goes by another name, Paul. And so that might be the reason why you didn't make the connection, if you didn't. Now Saul is this man who has it all together. And you wouldn't know that from this part of the story. But if you know the context, you would know. And so we're going to read this part of the story, this healing, in, in the larger context of Saul's story, but in larger context of the book of Acts, and then in the larger context of Scripture. And in that, we can understand something deeper that God is doing. Because the thing that God is doing in Saul's life in this healing is the thing that God is doing from the beginning of Acts, and is also the thing that God is doing in Genesis. God is doing something new. God is always doing something new in our lives. But God is also doing something old. God is doing what he's always done. God is doing what God does. So, in this healing, you have a man who's blind. And you have a believer in Jesus Christ by the name of Ananias. And he comes to him and he says, I was given a vision. There's a man named Saul who needs healing here. And I've come to heal you. And he does. And there's something like scales that falls from the man's eyes. And apart from that, it doesn't seem that extraordinary when compared to the other healings. But we lift it up and, and study the story in a different way because of who Paul was. And we pay more attention to it. And it's kind of funny thinking that it's not extraordinary from the other healings in a way because obviously all these healings are extraordinary. Somebody's being miraculously healed. But what God is doing, he's doing through his people. What God is doing, he's doing through his word spoken and proclaimed. And at the end of this story, you see Saul going out and proclaiming the word in a way that nobody can refute it. But when you think about this healing and you think about the other healings, you see this pattern. In the, in the beginning of Acts and earlier in our sermon series, we heard the story of a man who was crippled, who was brought to the temple every day so that he could beg. And begging, he looks at the apostles asking for money, Peter and John, and they see him. And there's something in that. So many times when Jesus heals somebody, it says first that he sees them. How many times do we go through life? Do we have interactions with clerks at checkout stations, with other people in traffic, with coworkers, with family members even, where we don't really see them as people? Where we don't really see people, we maybe see problems. You see cars darting in and out of traffic and causing all kinds of problems. You see people that are not moving when they're in the way. You see people are doing their job a little bit too slowly or maybe in a way that you find obnoxious. But how many times do you really see people? Ananias comes in and he sees Saul. And when Saul's eyes are open, he sees people for the first time. Now the apostles come 
Peter and John to the temple, and they see this man, and then they tell him, look at us. And there's something intentional about that. He goes to the temple for his healing. And when he sees the apostles, the apostles say, look at us. That thing you went to the temple for, it's not found in the temple. It's found in the people of God. It's found in the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is bringing new life to you. And we give it to you in the name of Jesus Christ, that powerful name that we just sang about. And, and in this, we see that there's this transformation. There's this new thing that God is doing. He's not moving in his temple the way that people expected. He's moving in his people in the way that they didn't expect. He's moving because his Holy Spirit was dwelling in his people. And it's the people that are low, the people that are meaningless, the people that don't really have significance in the culture. Now Saul has significance. Saul is the big man on campus. He's like the, the Ivy League Pharisee. He's brilliant. And if you read his writings, you know that he's brilliant. And you can see this. But not only that, is he, is he brilliant, but he studied under the best teachers. He was circumcised in the eighth day. He was born in the right tribe, and he was given every opportunity to grow in his faith. And not only was he given every opportunity, but he took every opportunity. And he capitalized on it. This is a self-made man. This is a man that you would look up to. And in fact, even though we think of the Pharisees in a negative way because of the way the Gospels talk about them, Saul is a man that everybody in his society would have looked up to. So since Saul is the one that everybody would look up to, who's Ananias? We don't know. We don't know anything about his story before this point in the book of Acts. We don't know his conversion story. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his social status. We just know that Jesus came to him and spoke. And we know that he went. So what did he do after this? We don't know. This is the only time that he's in the book of Acts. But you see this, and I want you to realize this, that God uses somebody that we would all consider insignificant, somebody that's low on the totem pole, to change the life of somebody that has a lot of status, somebody who, who has it all together, so to speak. And I want you to think about that. You're not too small. You can make a difference. God can move in you in a way that changes things that you can never even imagine. Don't doubt God's power at work in your life. Now Saul, being the big man on campus, being the Ivy League Pharisee, being the one who knows the law inside and out, has memorized the Torah, and knows the Word of God, and lives by the Word of God to the T, makes himself the person who decides who's in and who's out. He's the person that decides who's good and who's not. Saul makes himself the person who has to defend God's integrity. If Saul doesn't defend God's integrity, then who does? Because there's all these people who are claiming to be the people of God that aren't doing things that they should do. So I'm going to go tell them the ways that they're wrong. And I'm going to tell them to live their lives in a different way. And Saul takes that job very seriously. He's the self-appointed defender of God's integrity. 
I saw a cartoon not long ago. They had a man at a computer, and he's ferociously typing, and you see his wife heading up the stairs behind him saying, honey, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't. Somebody on the internet is wrong. (laughs) We can relate to that. It drives me crazy how many people on the internet are wrong. And they're wrong in really blatant, obvious ways. And, And I just feel like I just have to tell them all the ways that they're wrong. Especially when they're talking about God. Come on, I have a degree in this. You just have to let it go. We make ourselves the self-appointed defenders of God's integrity. We don't do God any favors. Who are we that we think that we need to defend God? Does God need defending? God doesn't need us to defend him. Now, I think we can all think of Christians that have played this life, played this role in our lives. And maybe you are that kind of Christian as well. Maybe you're the kind of Christian who's kind of the heresy police on Facebook. Maybe you're the kind of Christian who is always looking for somebody who's saying something wrong. Or maybe you're the one who's always telling your family the way that they're living their faith in the wrong way. Now, let me ask you this. Are you making yourself the self-appointed defender of God's integrity? If you are, for the sake of everything holy and the rest of the people who call themselves Christians, please stop. You're not doing any of us any favors. You're making us look kind of bad. And Saul's kind of that way too, where you see people, and and I've seen so many people who are damaged in their faith walk, in their life with Christ, because some Christian came and told them that they're doing it all wrong and they need to start thinking about world and, and life the way that they think about the world and life. And it really is not doing any of us any favors. So Paul makes himself the one who decides and the one who, based on his knowledge of God, which obviously is very extensive, and his relationship with God, which obviously is very admirable, based on these things, he makes himself the one who gets to say who's in and who's out. You're in and you're out. And and Ananias and the rest of the Christians and Stephen, who comes a couple chapters before this, is somebody that's out. And Saul and the rest of the Pharisees are in. And the way that our culture works, we don't really have something comparable to this in our culture. The in and the out thing. Now, there are some ways that I think this is starting to grow more and more a thing. And we'll talk about that. But I think, I think the closest thing you can relate to is high school. Were you in the in crowd in high school or the not? in crowd? Which clique did you fit into? What are the ways that we're hell-bent? And I don't say that loosely. We're hell-bent on being right. We are so uptight about being right about everything that it gets in the way of the way that we live our lives. It gets in the way of our ability to live our lives at all. Regina George, did you see the way she was described? They said, she is the human expression of evil. Evil in human form. Now it's kind of funny that these girls and and, uh, this boy are talking about the plastics in such a judgmental way because it's the flip side of the same thing, right? They're saying how judgmental the plastics are for the way that they carry themselves. They're being exactly the same way with the plastics. They're so judgmental 
of how stupid they are and how uh, false they are. And, and it becomes this way of making sure that I'm right because I'm nothing like these other people. And how are we like that? How are we so sure that we're right? We, we want so much to have our life to be in control. And, and having our life in control is about being right. And it's about being an adult. And being an adult means you have things figured out. You have a plan for yourself. And, and you're ach- achieving things. And you want to be a, a self-made man or woman. You want to be self-actualized. And Saul was all these things. Saul had such a stranglehold on his life. He was so sure that he was right. He was so in control that his life was getting out of control by so in control he was trying to be. He was choking the control right out of his life. Is this the way that you live your life? What does it mean to not be right? What does it mean for you to fail? What does it mean for you to say, I don't know? One of my professors at seminary was named David Lowe's. And David Lowe's uh, was brilliant. He's a very smart man. He was the leader in his field. And he was a leader on campus. And he was a leader in all these different ways. And, and uh, very innovative in the way that he th- thought about preaching and, and scripture. Well respected. And he, was, he has kids. And he was having his kids go through Suzuki School of Violin. And part of the thing that they wanted him to do, this is an innovative way of learning violin, was uh, to learn to play a song on the violin so he could empathize with his kids and understand what they were going through trying to understand the instrument. So they said, okay, here's, here's a violin. Learn to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. So here we have big egghead professor guy learning a Twinkle Twinkle Little Star uh, on the violin so that they could do a recital with all the parents. And he, he can get up and speak in front of a lot of people and be perfectly fine. And he gets up to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and his hands are shaking so much that he can hardly even get the bow to touch the strings because he's so afraid of not being the expert in the room. We're so, we're so uptight about being right. We're so... We, we need so badly to be right about everything. We need so badly to have our lives together, to be the expert. We, we, we can't be wrong and we can't fail. And we, and we can't show that we haven't thought everything out to the nth degree. And, and this is the way Saul lived his life. And for the plastics, it's like that. And for us, it's like that in our relationship. Have, have you been in your relationship and, and failed in some way and had to eat your humble pie and say, I'm sorry. And maybe you've refused to do that. Maybe that's something you need to go and do. To say I was wrong. Saul, in this self-assured faith that he has, one of the practices that we know that they did in the first century was to meditate on Scripture and meditate specifically on the different passages from the Old Testament where there's a vision of of God. And one of the visions that we know that they would meditate on is Ezekiel 1. And and it's this passage that's really amazing. And Ezekiel sees these four living creatures, and each one has four faces on their heads, and each one has two wings. And 
and, and they're flying. And, and in the air, there's these wheels uh, that are spinning, and the wheels are covered with eyes. And, and in the middle of these things is a throne. It's the throne of God. And, and he sees this image that's like the Son of Man, but he, he, he describes it in vague ways because he doesn't want to describe it directly. And he, and he sees this, this image of this person's body burning like amber. And, and, and they're like fire. And, and, and they shine like the sun. And, and they're surrounded by a halo of rainbow and lightning. And, and this amazing vision, I just want you to imagine, it's possible that Saul was meditating on, his, on the road to Damascus on this vision. In his self-assured faith, Saul is trying to connect with God. Saul's in this place where he's imagining what it's like for Ezekiel to see God in this way, to be in the presence of God. And the goal with, the, with this meditation was to put yourself in that place, to try to feel what Ezekiel felt to stand before God. And imagine he's seeing in his mind's eye, imagining what these wheels in the sky look like and imagining what these seraphim, these creatures look like. And he's trying to imagine what the throne looked like. And he's imagining the heat that came off the fire of God, the presence of God in front of Ezekiel. And Saul, as he's trying to imagine this, the vision becomes more and more real. Imagine the way that he feels as he starts to understand that he's not seeing this with his mind's eye anymore. Imagine what he thinks when he realizes that he's seeing this with his real eyes. In actuality, that, the, that God himself is standing before him. Imagine how Saul feels when he realizes that God is before him. And, and he's absolutely terrified and absolutely elated at the same time that he has the ecstasy of of. of the ultimate experience for a Jewish man in the first century is to stand in the presence before God. And his mind goes to all the passages that he knows, passages about Ezekiel standing before God and, and Moses standing before God and Isaiah standing before God. And here he is, he's experiencing the same thing. And, and his heart starts to beat so fast because here he is in the presence of God and, and it's the most beautiful thing that he's ever experienced until he sees the face of God which is never described in these passages. And the face of God that he sees is the face of a carpenter from Nazareth. He sees the face of Jesus Christ. He sees the face of the one that he hates. Now, I want you to imagine that his elation, that his ecstasy kind of falls not just back to Oh, that's disappointing, but all the way back to the bottom to realize that a man who spent his whole life trying to be right about every single thing realizes that he was wrong about the most important thing in his life, about the most important thing in his faith, that everything that he's done for God, he was actually doing against God. And this man who's made himself the self-proclaimed defender of the integrity of God, has made himself actually the, the ultimate enemy of God's integrity. Imagine the shame that he feels. Imagine the guilt that he feels. Imagine that he wants nothing more than just die. 
Imagine the way that it undoes him to feel this. To feel that he's made himself the enemy of the Almighty. And here he stands in the Almighty's presence before God. And like thunder, God's voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asks a question that he knows the answer to. Imagine not knowing what to say. When, when God asks you a question, there's nothing to say. So he answers the question, Lord, who are you? I'm Jesus Christ. You've made yourself the person who gets to say who's in and who's out. And you've put me on the outside. And you, may, you put my brothers and my sisters on the outside. And you've gotten yourself a decree so that you can go and, and make, make fools of all the people that I love. And, and you have put yourself above these people as the arbiter of everything that's good and, and the dispenser of, of God's good things. But I haven't put you in that place. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why are you crushing my heart? When you step on these people, you are crushing my heart. Because these are people that I care for. Saul was so intent on being in control that he forgot the most important thing. We can get so intent on being in control that we forget the things that really matter too. We can forget our relationships. We can forget to see people. Remember the apostles. They go to the temple and they see people. Saul would go to the temple and he would see people that weren't as good as him, that weren't as worthy as him. Now he goes to the temple and he sees people. But he's not there yet. Right now, he's just wondering if he's going to survive. He's probably wondering if he's even alive still. What's more important? To be right or to be in a relationship? There's so many times when you can't be both. A big part of what I do here is counseling with couples or individuals. And I talk to couples about this a lot. Are you right? Or are you in a relationship? What are you going to pick? And, and for us, we have to choose. And Saul, his whole life was choosing right. I was working with one couple who shall remain nameless, obviously. Uh, I, I wasn't working very much. I, even, I couldn't even pick them out of a crowd if they were here tonight. Uh, but they were telling me the story. And, and they, they, they're saying, we fight so much. And it was years ago I talked to him, and, and, and we have no idea how to stop fighting. And, and she drives me nuts. And she's like, I know, he drives me even more nuts. And, and it's, we, we can't stop fighting. I'm like, well, what are the things you fight about? And they think, it's funny when you ask that question, because they're like, well, 
well, what's the most recent thing you fought about? Because they fight about everything. They can't think of what they're even fighting about. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? I don't even remember what this fight was about, but you drive me nuts and I hate you. And, and this fight they had, they were fighting about something, and she was making a sandwich at the time, and she's cutting tomatoes on this cutting board, and, and he's flailing his arms about and being, you know, you know, making sure that she sees how upset he is, and he bumps her cutting board, and a piece of tomato goes flying on the floor. And then the fight becomes about the tomato. And she's like, you knocked that tomato on the floor. You picked that up. And he said, no, it's your tomato. You pick it up. No, 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 you pick it up. Guess how long the tomato was on the floor? Four days. Four days of a tomato on the floor. Because they had decided they weren't going to let go of being right. I'm right about the tomato, and you're going to pick it up. And, and we're in that place too. We have to let go of our need to be right if we're ever going to be in a relationship with each other. We have to let go of our need to be right if we're ever going to be in a relationship with God. Because being in relationship with God means that we have to admit that we are sinful and unclean. It means we have to admit that we have fallen short of God's glory. And Paul comes to this place where he realizes that. When he stands before the Almighty God and he sees the face of Jesus Christ, the person that he's been persecuting, he sees the ways that he is not worthy of standing in God's presence. He sees the ways that he has failed God. And everything that he's tried to do right, he has failed God. Failing is not our enemy. Failing is not the thing that's going to kill us. Fearing to fail and, and refusing to admit that we fail, that's the thing that's going to kill us. We, we don't let ourselves hold ourselves accountable. We don't let other people hold us accountable because we are so hell-bent on being right and proving to everyone else that we're right, that our theology is right, that we're right about the tomato on the floor, that we're right about our politics, that we're right about all the things that we do in this world, that we're not going to let go of being right. Until you admit that I'm right, I'm not going to be in relationship with you. How far is that going to get you? How far is that going to get you? Instead, I want you to go to a place to where you're able to see the people that you've put on the outside. You're able to see people as people and not as problems. Where you're able to see the person that's sitting next to you that's driving you totally nuts. You're able to see that person. Really see them. And have empathy for them. When we let go of being right, we start to be capable of that. We start to be capable of empathy. And empathy is the only thing that's going to fix what we got going right now. Because in our civil discourse, things have gotten pretty uncivil. I don't know if you've noticed that lately, but things are not going so well in our public. As we think about, okay, if this person is on this end of the political spectrum, I'm not talking to them, and I don't care what they have to say, because they're evil, right? Regina George, she's a human form of pure evil. We've decided if I'm on the left, it's the people on the right. If I'm on the right, it's the people on the left. And those people are pure evil. I'm right and you're pure evil. And we've gotten to that place. And I don't care which side you're on. What I care about is if you see somebody as pure evil and there's no way they could ever offer anything to the discourse, what are you missing out on? You're missing out on relationship with somebody else. You're missing out on a person. 
You're missing out on seeing somebody as a person, as a person who's created in the image of God, that God loves with his whole heart, that God made with intention. You're missing out. And we're so, we're so intent on being in control. And that's the thing we have to let go of. You have to let go of being in control. And it's heavy on my heart. As I see in the news this week about Philando Castile and that trial and the videos that you see coming out. And I want you to think about what you did when you watched that video. Did you watch that video trying to prove your case? On whichever side you believe about that. Or did you see people? Did you see people dying? Did you see people killing? Did you see people in a place that they shouldn't have been? Do you see people making decisions they should have been making? Do you see an officer who's trying so hard to control a situation that it's spinning out of control? We need to let go of our need to be in control. So many times in our relationships, in our life, in our interactions with other people in casual ways, but more importantly in our relationships at home, It's all about having power. It's about getting our way. It's all about making sure that we're safe. What we really need is to let go of our safety and embrace each other. How can we live in a place, in a world, where somebody can get shot driving down the street? We're better than this. We can do better than this. And it starts by letting go of being right and instead being willing to be in a relationship, being able to see people as people. It's imperative that we do that. We have to do that. Not only do we have to do that for each other's sake, but we have to do that because that's what the kingdom of God is about. That is what God is calling us to do. Jesus Christ comes to Saul. And Saul sees him. For the first time in Saul's life, see, Paul sees a person. Saul sees this person that he's persecuting, not only as a person, but a person in the image of God. What if you saw the people that you hate? because of the race or anything else as a person created in the image of God. God calls us to let go of being right and choose relationship. Not only does God call to us to do that, God models that for us. It's exactly what Jesus Christ does in the cross. Exactly what Jesus Christ does in coming to us as a human. God made Jesus Christ 
who knew no sin to become sin for us. He let go of being right so that we could be righteous, so that we could be his righteousness, so that when God looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of Christ. We let go of our need to be right, and God gives us righteousness. God gives us the strength that we need to do the right thing, to stand for right in this world, but also to stand before the face of God and know that God embraces us wholeheartedly. And that's what the gospel is about. But it's also about God telling us, I'm more interested in relationship with you. I'm more interested in saving you than I am in being right. I'm letting go of my right to, to destroy you because I'm God and you are against God. You are the persecutor of God. And I'm letting go of that because I love you because I'm in a relationship with you, because I want nothing more in this world than to be with you. God gave his only son so that he could be in relationship with you because he loves you. God models this, and it transforms Saul. Saul, for the first time, sees a person in God, and then Saul leaves that place blind, This man who's so self-sufficient, who's always right, who's always in control, has squeezed his control to the point where he's not in control anymore. He's not in control anymore. He has to be led by the hand to even get where he's going. And he's struck blind. And and the word for uh, the scales that, that fell from his eyes is a word related to leprosy. This man who had done everything in his life to make sure that he was clean in God's eyes, ritually clean, is now unclean because of the scales on his eyes. This man, who was right about everything, has been wrong about everything. And he's blind, but he sees for the first time. And we think of this story as Saul's conversion, but I want you to think of it also as Ananias' conversion. Ananias is in this place where he hears and sees this vision of God, Jesus Christ, calling him to go to Saul. Ananias, yes, Lord, here I am. I want you to go to this man, Saul. Eh, I've heard of Saul. I'm not going there. Thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the suggestion, but I think I'll not. I think I'll hang out and watch a game or something. No, Ananias, you're going to go to Saul. You see, the thing about Saul <clears throat> is he's persecuting my people. He's the one that's killing us. <clears throat> he has a decree that says he can come and arrest us. So me going to Saul's house sounds like a pretty bad idea. Yeah, but I'm Jesus Christ, so I'm telling you to go. Okay, I'll go. And he goes. So there's this conversion on the way as Ananias goes. He goes from, no, I'm not doing that, to when he walks in the house. Did you hear this? Ananias comes to Saul. He says, brother, brother Saul, this man who's all about killing Ananias and his people, Ananias calls brother, and he heals him. He heals him just as Christ said, because Saul is meant to be this instrument in God's hand to reach the people who are on the outside, to reach the people who are low, to reach the people who have no right to be in the presence of God, because that is where Saul is. And so this man, who at the beginning 
of Acts 9, it says that he's breathing a murderous rage against God's people. He loved God so much that he loved himself into a murderous rage. How much sense does that make? This man goes from murderous rage to this, to where he would write this. Now I will show you a more excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful, always endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in tongues and unknown languages and all these other things that you lift up above love are going to fade away. But there's one thing that I want you to know. I want you to know that love will never fail. That love is the way that you're supposed to live your life. That as you see the person that drives you crazy, the person that you want to not be a person, the person that you just want to dismiss, that's the person that God is calling you to love. And, and, he, and he says these things from the bottom of his heart, and he lives these things in the way that he lives his life. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians. These people drive him nuts. And he's calling them to love because he loves them. And God is calling you to that too. As your heart breaks for the things that you see in the news, don't go to a place of offense. Don't go to a place of defense. Go to a place of love. See people. The theme for this year comes from this verse. The way that you see people, the way that you can be known and to know fully, as Paul writes about and as Christ calls us to, is to let go of being right and choose relationship.